the third chapter of the book of Micah. I'll read all 12 verses. Now, Micah lives over in the uh, Nahum neighborhood. The Jonah and the, Na and the Nahums, Jonah and Nahum are Micah's neighbors on either side. And so if you want to have a, you know, I'm going to let you have a little extra time to find it. You are permitted to look in the index. It is hard to find. If you can find Amos and you can flip the pages and go to the right, you'll find Micah. Sometimes I think we label as a, as a, a um, dissident or a troublemaker person who speaks against an institution, and we label as unpatriotic somebody who points out the wrong that is in the nation. And so I'm going to run that risk this morning, but I'm going to speak um, as a prophet from the prophet. Chapter 3, and I said, here now, heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice? You who hate good and love evil, who tear off their skin from them and their flesh from their bones, and who eat flesh of my people, strip off their skin from them and break their bones and chop them up as for the pot and as meat in a kettle. Then they will cry out to the Lord but he will not answer them. Instead, he will hide his face from them at all time because they have practiced evil deeds. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray. When they have something to bite with their teeth, they cry peace. But against him who puts nothing in their mouths, they declare holy war. Therefore, it will be night for you without vision and darkness for you without divination. The sun will go down on the prophets and the day will become dark over them. The seers will be ashamed and the diviners will be embarrassed. Instead, they will all cover their mouths because there is no answer from God. On the other hand, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord and with justice and courage to make known to Jacob his rebellious act, even to Israel, his sin. Now hear this, heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel who abhor justice and twist everything that is straight, who build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with violence, violent injustice, her leaders pronounce judgment for a bribe. Her priests instruct for a price. And her prophets divine for money. Yet they lean on the Lord saying, Is not the Lord in our midst? Calamity will not come upon us. Therefore, on account of you, Zion will be plowed as a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the temple will become 
high places of a forest. Several or a good time ago, Bill Bright, who is the founder and director of Campus Crusade for Christ International, a man who has crisscrossed America several times, hundreds of times, and the great responsibility that he has, was speaking to a group of religious leaders in Santa Clara, California, and made this bold, audacious, outrageous statement. He said, gentlemen, in 14 months, this nation will be dead. This nation has 14 months to live. And the only way, he said, America will survive will be because of a national revival and the direct intervention of Almighty God so that the only thing that will prevent this nation's collapse was this man's bold declaration was the second coming of the Lord Jesus or a revival that sweeps the nation. Now he wasn't talking about the overthrow of uh, the nation by the Soviet Union or the uh, destruction of America by a nuclear explosion. Not, not that at all. He was talking about the freedoms that we have and the way of life that we all have all enjoyed is going to soon, by his prediction, be a thing of the past. Now he wasn't speaking alone, I don't think. I think he was echoing what many sociologists and statesmen and, and uh, religious leaders have been saying, that our nation is headed rapidly down a road toward a head-on collision, and the brakes seem to be out. Um, is there really that much wrong with America that would uh, cause that kind of statement? In 1968, after Robert Kennedy was assassinated, the President of the United States addressed the people and he made this statement. He said, this country is not sick. There's not anything wrong with this nation. And then he point, appointed a blue ribbon commission a group of intellectuals to study and report on what's wrong with America. It seemed like one who was treating the symptoms of an illness while he was denying the illness. I don't think it's possible this morning for us to deny the fact that America suffers from an acute illness. The symptoms are just too great to deny that. Now there are some characteristics of every nation that is, that is lived, some characteristics. If you're going to try to find a common denominator of every nation that has lived since the beginning of time, you would find several uh, characteristics, common denominators. I want to mention three. Every nation, regardless of how pure its conception, how glorious its beginning, has always has all become corrupt, have all become corrupt. There is no nation that is the exception. Regardless of how pure that nation is in its conception, 
Every nation has gone corrupt, no exception. Secondly, the second characteristic is this, is, is this. When this spiritual calamity begins, or when it's taking place, the majority of the people are not aware of it. And those who are aware of it are totally indifferent to it. When the spiritual calamity is taking place, the majority of the people are totally unaware that the nation is collapsing, and those who are aware of it are totally indifferent to it. The third characteristic of every nation is this, that the, that the causes or the factors that led to that nation's collapse are all similar, always similar. Now somebody said that we never learn anything from history except that we never learn anything from history. I think we can learn from history. I think we can learn from the third chapter of Micah because this is a, a message from God to a nation. And any message from God to any nation is relevant to every nation or any nation at any time. Israel had a pure conception. Israel was conceived in the mind of God and she had a, 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 the most ethical religion of any nation that has ever lived. And yet, when this letter, this book was written, this message was proclaimed, that nation had fallen lower than any nation to its time. Now there's much about America that parallels Israel. I know we can't go overboard, and it's too simplistic to imagine that we could parallel Israel and America and say that, that America is the second Israel. We can't do that, I don't think. But there are some parallels, especially with regard to origin and blessing. America's origin was pure. Now, it is also simplistic to say that America from the beginning was totally Christian, but it is true, I think, to say that the dream of America, the, 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 the American dream was born in a desire for freedom, including the freedom of worship. And in the center of all communal life, in every community was the church, and the community revolved around the church in the beginning. It was pure in its conception. And if we talk about the blessing of God upon the nation of Israel, we must in the same breath talk about the blessing of God upon America. For no nation has been thusly blessed as this nation that you and I enjoy. Now what causes a nation to collapse? that has a pure beginning and a rich blessing from God. Now Paul says in the New Testament that the things that happen in the Old Testament are for an example to us. They're, they're to be our example. So if we can find what caused that nation to collapse, would it not be logical to assume that the same factors will cause this nation to collapse, to, to experience the judgment of God? For God has not changed, has He? I mean, the principles of God have not changed, have they? He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, Micah says that there are three factors, there are three groups of people that, that contributed to the collapse of the nation in his time. 
Look with me at verse 12 again. And he begins that verse with the, with the word therefore. And that word is therefore this purpose. To show that everything that's going to be said is on the basis of what has already been said. So he says, therefore, Zion will be plowed. The verb means continuous action. Zion will be plowed under. And it speaks of the thoroughness of the judgment of God. Therefore, on the basis of what I have said in verse 11, verses 1 through 11, Israel will be plowed under with a thorough judgment of God. And then he continues the statement in verse 12, because or on account of you, that, that is to say that because of certain groups of people in Israel and their attitude and actions, God judged Israel with a thorough judgment and the temple places became high places, a forest, desolate. Now it's not hard to identify these three groups of people. I mean they stand out like sore thumbs. The first group of people are identified as the perverting politicians. Verse 9, perverting politicians. Therefore, on account of you, he calls them rulers of the house of Israel. He's talking about the heads, the political leaders of the, of the nation of Israel. Therefore, on account of you who have twisted everything that is straight, he says. And I believe it says in the King James, you have perverted all equity. Perverting politicians. How I many he starts right at the top. That's why he starts out with them in verse 1 of the chapter. I mean, he starts at the top. The reason Israel failed was because her politicians were corrupt. Um, have you ever noticed that when the president makes an address, after his speech, you know, he's speaking to the nation on television perhaps, and after he finishes, these intellectuals get on, this panel of intellectuals get on there and they tell what he said, what he didn't say, and they tell what he meant to say and what he should have said and what they thought he said and what he thought he said. And they spend about 15 or 20 minutes just talking about what he said and then they draw a, a, a line, a bottom line, and they conclude what is the matter on the basis of what he said, what he didn't say, what he should have said, what they thought he said, should have said, and what he thought he should have said. And I've always just wished that while they were drawing the net there and drawing the bottom line, that some prophet would just interrupt and say, let me tell you what's the real problem. The real problem has to start at the top. The politicians are corrupt. It's where God always started. And somehow the nation of Israel, they, they, were in this pan, they were in this meeting, this high level summit meeting. And, and, and the Syria was building its army and were becoming a threat. And Micah burst in on their meeting. Now I don't know how he had access to their meeting, but he burst in on their meeting and he says, this is what's wrong with Israel, perverting politicians. And I remember when Elijah landed on the scene the nation was so corrupt that God shut up heaven and didn't let it rain and there was a drought for years and people were starving. 
And when Ahab the king saw Elijah, he said, you're the one that's troubling Israel. And Elijah looked back at him. He said, no, I'm not the trouble in Israel. You are. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand me. I'm not taking every politician and putting him under a blanket and saying politicians are corrupt, period. There are some godly men who are politicians, statesmen, and I thank God for them every day of my life. But the majority of them are too much like Micah describes them. He calls them cannibals who flay the skin off the people and devour them for their own corrupt appetites and desires and chop them up into small pieces as meat in a pot. And he describes them as shepherds who instead of leading their flock have devoured it. Does it seem like sometimes that we're being consumed and flayed and devoured by the very people we have elected? And he imposes a serious question in verse 1. He says, is it not for you to know justice or judgment? Now the word know there is the word it means practical knowledge, practical application. And what he's saying is this, is it not for you political leaders to know what is practically right and wrong for our nation? And is it not your responsibility to make application on a day-by-day of what is right and just and good? That's your responsibility, he said, and you have perverted your responsibility by, by your own greed and lust for power and wealth. Now, what is our responsibility to political leaders? I think our responsibility to political leaders is twofold. I think first of all, we are to honor them. Seems like a paradox, doesn't it? We're to respect them. The same thing that you, that you uh, expect or demand of your children, honor your father and your mother, is what we are, uh, that, that is right for us as, as, as citizens uh, to, to honor and respect. those who are in authority. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to honor, respect the person, but the office, the position he holds, it's there, can't deny it. You remember when Saul was pursuing David and, 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 and was going to kill him? David had opportunity time and time again to kill Saul, but he didn't. Now, he didn't necessarily respect the man, I don't imagine, who was pursuing him, but he honored the position that God had put him in, and he wouldn't kill him. And you remember over in the book of Acts when the, when the apostle Paul had that run-in with the high priest and after the, their run-in, Paul was told who that man was and when he found out who he was, the high priest, he went back and apologized to him because he respected the position, the responsibility that man, that man held, the, 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 the responsibility to honor him. I think the second responsibility we we have to political leaders is perhaps the, the gravest sin that this church or any church commits. And and the responsibility is found in 1 Timothy chapter 2. I want you to listen to it carefully. First of all, then I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men. For kings, for kings? You mean this king? Yes, this king. 
This king who exploits and abuses his position and the people that he, that he, that he governs. Yes, this king, this king, that we may lead first kings and all who are in authority in order for the purpose that we might lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Now hear this well. The desire for us to have peace and tranquility and godliness and orderliness will not come by electing a democratic president or a republican one. It's not, it will not come by legislation. It will come because the people of God pray for it to happen. In order that we may live a quiet and tranquil life, how much time do you spend praying for those who are in authority? Could it be that the fact, could it be the, that we have been so uh, negligent and, and, and so um, ineffective in our responsibility to pray for those that that's the reason we're in the mess we're in? Perverting politicians, the reason why Israel failed. Now, lest you think I'm going to get on somebody else, I'm going to go to number two. The second reason Israel fell was because of pacifying preachers. So he says it in verse 5. He said, And thus saith the Lord, you prophets, and, um, um, and, and amazingly enough, he says that you preachers, you prophets are responsible for the sin, for the sin of my people because you preach those smooth messages that everybody wants to hear. Those messages that, 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 that are popular because you do not preach, thus saith the Lord. Much of the spiritual decay and spiritual perversion must be laid at the feet of American preachers. Now there was a time when the pulpits of America had a tremendous impact upon the nation's life. I mean the voice that was heard from the pulpits of America had an impact upon what went on in America. No longer is that true. I wonder sometimes I was saying, one Saturday afternoon I walked down to Kmart about three blocks from my house. On the way home I was thinking about the message for, for Sunday and I got to thinking, I wonder how many times I've preached a sermon here and it has absolutely zero impact on anybody here, on everybody here. Zero impact. Makes no difference on most of us. Three or four years ago we went to Philadelphia on our mission trip. We stayed in this large Baptist church in downtown Philadelphia. And because of row housing around that church, there were probably more people just within two or three blocks of that church than there are in Durant, America. And you go around the corner of the church. We did it. We, we're on census. You go around the corner of that church and you talk about that church and the folks didn't even know it was there. We told us, we're, we're, we're from so-and-so Baptist church. They said, well, where is that? And when they have Sunday morning worship service, 
there'd be 15 or 20 people at max in that big auditorium. It was as big as this, I suppose, uh, just about. I, my memory seemed like it was. And the folks around the church didn't even know that the church was there or a sermon was being preached and couldn't care less. And so, because of the pacification of the pastors and their smooth uh, messages, their liberal statements and truths, the word of God died in Israel. Now their ministry was fourfold, watch this. It was a ministry of deceit. In verse five he said, you say peace when there is no peace. Why were they saying peace? Because that's what the people wanted to hear. I talked to a guy not long ago, he said, invite him to our church, he said, what kind of a preacher are you? He said, I like upbeat preachers. He said, I like preachers that, that preach positively. So I like upbeat preachers. He said, I don't like preachers that get up there, you know, and tell people what's wrong with them all the time. He said, I like upbeat sermons and upbeat preachers. What he was saying is, I want somebody to tell me what's right with me, not what's wrong with me. I want somebody to congratulate me for what I'm doing right, not point out what I'm doing wrong. There was a ministry of deceit the preacher stood and said, this is the way it is when it really wasn't the way it is. They would not say, there's something wrong with us when there is, as Hosea said, there is profanity on our lips and there is dishonesty from our hearts and there is the disrespect of human life and there are people in the congregation and in the mem membership committing adultery. Wouldn't say that, that wasn't popular. There was a ministry of desire. He says in verse five, as long as you have something to bite on, you'll preach. What he meant was, as long as there's giving, you, giving the preacher something to eat. They, they were there for what they, the prophets were prophesying for their gain, he's saying. He said when they wouldn't give them what they wanted, they declared holy war on them. They said these folks, are, these folks are alien to God and they declared holy war on those who opposed them, wouldn't give them what they wanted. It was a ministry of desire. It was a, it was a ministry of disgrace. He said they had no word from God so they put their hands over their mouths in embarrassment. That was, that was a symbol of saying, I have no message from God today. By their own admission, they had no vision from God. By their own admission, they had no message from God. So they put their hands over their mouths and said, you've come to hear God's word, but God has spoken no word to tell you. That's what Amos was talking about when he talked about a famine of the Word of God in the land. The people came on Sunday morning, Sunday after Sunday, but the preacher had nothing to tell them. And theirs was a ministry of death. You, you remember um, in the first, in first Kings chapter 22, when Ahab, the king of Israel, came to Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, and asked him to go with him in an alliance down to Raboth Gilead in battle. 
And, and, and Jehoshaphat said to Ahab, he said, well, we better ask God if it's what we should do. He said, don't you have any preachers around? He said, yes, I've got 400 prophets, 400 preachers. He said, well, call them in and ask them if it's the right thing for us to do. And so Ahab did. The prophets he had told Ahab what he wanted to hear. And all 400 of them said, well, sure, go on down to Ramoth Gilead and, buy, and do battle because you're going to win. And Jehoshaphat said, isn't there a prophet of God here? Well, he said, yeah, there's one old boy in the land, one prophet named uh, Micaiah, but he, 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 all he does is, t he doesn't like me, so he tells me everything bad. He, he won't tell me what I want to hear. He, he doesn't like me. He said, well, call him down here and let's hear him. So they went after Micaiah, and the, and the messenger who went to get him on the way back said, now the king wants to hear that everything's all right to go down to Ramoth Gilead. Tell him, tell him it's okay. I mean, don't, don't cause any problems. Don't, don't rock the boat. Don't stir the waters. And so... Uh, Micaiah came into the presence of, 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 of Ahab and Jehoshaphat and he divined and he said, sure, it's all right to go down to Ramoth Gilead. And Jehoshaphat looked at him and said, speak the word of God. And Jehoshaphat said, I see Israel scattered on a thousand hills like sheep without a shepherd. Now the question is this morning, what do we want from the pulpits of our land? Do we want some 400 preachers to stand and say what we want them to say? Or do we want one man who will stand and say, Thus saith the Lord. Pacifying preachers. Something happened to Israel this thought and then I'm through. Because of presuming people and they said, and they leaned upon the Lord. They leaned upon the Lord. Did you see that in verse 11? And they leaned upon the Lord saying, is not the Lord in our midst? Calamity is not going to happen to us. I mean, we've got it stamped on our coin. Don't you know? Haven't you seen our coins? In God we trust. I mean, it's in our pledge, one nation under God. We're a Christian nation. Nothing's going to happen to us. And we seem to have the idea that as long as we call ourselves a Christian nation, we're a Christian nation. And we seem to have the idea that we can do what we want to six days a week, but to come into God's house on Sunday in the ritual of worship, obliterates everything we do six days a week. And they lean upon the Lord. And the word lean means to find security there, to rest there. It's like to go to sleep saying, I'm all right, I'm a Christian. This is a Christian nation. We're all right, we go to church on Sunday. And, and to rest there. And he said, I have had it. And I'm going to plow Zion with my thorough judgment. It seems like that that presumption was twofold. It was a presumption upon the presence of God. It was saying, is it the Lord with us? You remember when Samson was sheared of his power and of his hair? That one day he woke up and 
didn't realize, says wist in the King James, wist that the Spirit of the Lord had not departed from him, didn't even know that the Spirit of God had departed from him. Now watch what I'm saying. And Hosea talks about the fact that God's presence or God's blessing of power can depart. Now he's not talking about losing your salvation when the Lord comes to live in your heart, to move out. He's not talking about that at all. He's talking about withdrawing his hand of blessing and power, withdrawing his anointing upon a church and its ministry. And so one day you wake up and you realize that you don't have power and you don't have privilege and you don't have blessing. And they presumed upon the protection of God. It's no calamity is going to happen to us. This will never happen to America. This will never happen to Durant. This will never happen to First Baptist Church. I read some time ago of a group of, of policemen in Chicago who, who had a theft ring among them. And they go out and steal these things and take it and hide it, then put on their badges, their uniforms, and go out and investigate the crime. And they thought they had this secure system by which they would never be caught because they were, they, they were hiding behind their own, their own authority, their own badges. And I remember what Jeremiah chapter 9 says, that great temple sermon. You need to read that sometime. Jeremiah stood and he said, you folks say the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, but you have made my house a robber's den, a den of thieves. You know what he was talking about? He's not talking about a place where robbers hid and, and, and went out and did their transactions, their crimes. He's talking about robbers who fled to their dens for security and hiding. He said, you folks are fleeing to the temple because you think you can find security in the temple. You can go out and commit your crimes and your inequities during the week and then run to the house of God and say, God will never hurt us because we're here. And then Jeremiah said, Thus saith the Lord, I'll make this temple like Shiloh. And if you'd been there and you were a good Jew, you would have gasped audibly. You'd have gone, <gasps> you'd have vapor locked. Because when he was talking about making that temple like Shiloh, he was referring to the time when the temple under under Eli, Eli's sons became corrupt and God brought judgment upon Shiloh and he leveled the temple and the Philistines carried off the Ark of the Covenant. They had such success in the battle, it even surprised the Philistines. And they plowed under the place where the temple was. He said, now you go down to Shiloh and you see if you can find any trace of the temple there. Now he says you flee to the church, you flee to the house of God and you take your little religious time card and you punch it and you say, look, I was there every Sunday from 10.30 to 12. See, my religious time card has been punched. Nothing's going to happen to me. And they made what was God's what was theirs. Now watch this. 
is this house, is this temple, is this church God's or is it ours? When he said he made it theirs, he meant that they acted and they did what they wanted to and God was supposed to fall in line and bless them. If this is really God's house, hear me now, every action of our lives must be open to Him. And every conclusion, even our religious conclusions, must be subject to change so that when we come into God's house, we don't come like robbers fleeing from crimes to find security. For I'm here to say, hear me, I'm here to say that judgment will begin at the house of God. And if the righteous can scarcely be spared, where shall the ungodly appear? Oh, how awesome is the thought of it. Daniel Webster once time, one time was asked, what is the most awesome thought that has come to your mind? And Daniel Webster said, my most awesome thought is my individual responsibility to God. I want you to think this morning an awesome thought. Your individual responsibility to God, what is it? As a father, what is it? As a husband, what is it? As a businessman, what is it? As a one in authority, either in the home, in the church, in the community, what is it? What is your individual responsibility to God? And what are you doing about it? And what is our salvation? It's to repent and to pray. Father, we've come to admit, to confess that we have not been individually responsible. Lord, we, we sometimes would like to just pass right on by the message of the prophet. We can't escape the fact this morning that there is a message of repentance and judgment that should lead to godliness, to repentance, to faith. And that if we've been and are indifferent to our individual responsibility, that we'll come to terms with that responsibility today and come to terms with the God of justice and judgment. Because I pray in His name, who was the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by me. Even Jesus, I pray. 
Amen.